Hey folks, welcome back to Autopsy of a Horror Movie. My name is Brucker, and this is part two of my discussion with Orlean, in which we dove deep into chapter one, Her Body Himself, of the horror essay by Carol J. Clover, Men, Women, and Chainsaws. And again, thank you so much for coming back to part two. Hope that you really enjoy this. Last time we talked about the introduction of the book, of chapter one, the killer, psychosexual theory, terrible place, and weapons. And in this episode, in part two, we are going over victims, final girls, cross-gender identification, shock, the body, and then our closing thoughts. really hope that you enjoy it, and please reach out to me on Twitter and Instagram at Brucker Horror to let me know what your thoughts are, share it with friends. And before we get into the episode, I want to give a shout-out to Horror Press. Thank you so much for being a really awesome partner. Those guys rock. What an awesome website horrorpress.com is. And I want to shout out the patrons, Tiffany, Jasher, Cleveland, and James. Thank you guys so much. You guys freaking rule. I got a little mini review of The Serpent in the Rainbow up there. People want to listen to that. That will only be on Patreon. But for right now, let's go ahead and get into the episode. Enjoy part two. In the victims section, she kind of talks about how these movies tend to show how a lot of these victims are sexual, have sexual transgressions. And this goes for both male and female characters. It's not really subjugated to one. Um, I will want to get into, though, how it is framed differently for both male and female characters. But um, so, yeah, so that's basically what she is positing here is that a lot of these victims are um, (laughs) they're perpetrators of sexual transgressions against the killer. Yeah, or... I mean, no, not sexually active at all, which in itself is like a transgression in these movies. Um, mm. You know, she she frames the the Girl Scout, the bookworm, the mechanic, not sexually active, unattached, watchful, boyish, with a a boy's name like Stevie, or even classically Lori. It just is so so interesting to think about. And like, and she also brought up like stretch. That kind of feels like a guy's nickname too. Well, or what I think maybe more her point is is like it could be a guy's nickname, but it could be the scariest thing, which is gender confusion. Uh, <laughs> but it, it, she she does get into though. I mean, so the final girl is a is is like an offshoot of this victims section in, in this essay. And she does kind of talk about how the final girls are masculine females that are pinned up against these feminine males as killers. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's so fascinating. Yeah, it's kind of, I don't know, she kind of, it's weird how she describes it, but, um, you know, she does describe how, like, these, a lot of these victims, they don't present them, they, they present themselves as they are. Like, you know, they are very much how media and cinema has portrayed women and men to be and they don't break out of these gender norms and they are killed while the final girl is able to survive she has some sort of component or characteristic that makes her a little bit more masculine as you described and she is then and that's what kind of like leads her to live later on and there's just so many things she gets into and it's it, it, it's a lot and it's kind of all over the place yeah but i i like I like the framing around the final girl as this like 
like she's framed to us as a girl who has these boyish characteristics who maybe her friends are like, oh, you're a tomboy or like you do things that dudes like. But the survival comes from the fusion of her having both Mm -hmm. because she is both able to be terrified, fall apart, cry, scream, run, and be the person who runs back and picks up the knife. All those things, all those adjectives you just used, she later says that how like critics or filmmakers say that like that's how like women are portrayed. They're they're allowed to have right. those like begging for their lives, crying, uh, screaming scenes. But and that is like coded as feminine, where the anger men are always shown as being angry and violent and fighting. Those mm-hmm. are the that's how they're allowed to be portrayed on screen. And how you just described the blending of those two when she does get her masculine anger as she calls it that's when she's able to win the day um before we get more into the final girl i kind of want to go back to the victims a little bit okay the point that she's kind of trying to make with these victims is that yes both men and women die and sometimes it's even sometimes it's disproportionate and it's normally due to sexual transgressions but the difference between them is not the body count per se but it's the methodology and the betrayal of them on the screen. Um, men tend to often die swiftly, dark from a distance. Um, and you're not reminded of their sexual transgressions during their killing, but you are for the women. And that's something I was thinking about this. Mm. So I have a, a few examples here. So Halloween, Bob and Linda. Uh, these are the people that have sex. They have sex and Bob goes downstairs to go get her a beer. And he is He's not necessarily killed swiftly. It is actually a very scary scene in the movie, and Carpenter frames it to be scary, and we do linger on his body and everything, mm-hmm. but we're not necessarily reminded of his sexual transgressions the same way we are with Linda when Michael goes upstairs and she teases him with her breasts, you know, saying, you like what you see. And it's like, oh, yeah, we're reminded, oh, yeah, she's, she's sexually active. We, she just did this, and she's going to flash us one more time before she dies. We don't get that with Bob. We also get this in Friday the 13th Part 1 with Kevin Bacon's character Jack and his uh, partner in it, Marcy. They have sex. And again, Kevin Bacon's death is very cool. You know, we get the the fire poker through the neck and Tom oh, God. Tom Savini knocks it out of the park. <laughs> but, and, and, but, you know, it's from like the chest up and he is clothed. Then when we go to kill Marcy, we have to frame her in a way where we see her butt she's in panties and we're again reminded of like what she just did and then she's murdered um so it's it's just interesting to think about it that way and seeing how whether it's spectacular or not or quick enough we are more likely to be reminded of the sexual transgressions when the women die more so often than when the men do and i think that was a fascinating point that she brought up it also makes me think that Men don't often expose their vulnerability before they're murdered in these movies in the same way that women do. Mm. Like women tend to make themselves vulnerable in these movies to the killers, often through mistakes, but the men are never in those same vulnerable positions. And so like no vulnerable part of a man is hurt during this by the Mm. other man. And I wonder if that's an important relationship too. Because even if these men or like boys have sexually transgressed, nothing about their murder is sexual. And that's interesting too. Hmm. 
It is interesting because actually I would think if we were talking like psychosocial development, there is a fair amount of like homoeroticism among like teenage boys who are just like in close quarters or really close friends. Like there's a certain like tension there that I think we'd see more in slashers, especially when boys or men's or the killer. Mm. Right? Yeah. It's huh. not all about women. <laughs> no. <laughs> um. <laughs> I did. So I did also, I, I said it earlier, I wanted to talk about sleepaway camp mm-hmm. in this. And I also wanted to delve into the treatment of the victims in that as well um and i think that this is an interesting case study just because of the sexual transgressions aren't always the i mean it happens but it's it's so different in this and i think the case is that angela i'm not sure what is the correct pronouns to use for angela in this but i mean Mm -hmm. throughout the movie we see that she is the we're all led on to believe that she's a woman and Mm-hmm. They they pull out the gender rug as uh, Clover likes to say in other examples, um, and that she's actually a guy, and that I think that Angela does have maybe some sort of resentment more towards women, maybe because she doesn't want to be a woman or because she hates her aunt for doing this to her. And so I kind of want to talk about the treatment between the male and female victims in this movie and how it kind of like relates back to like this sexual transgression thing, and it's weird to think about. So. There are two huge sexual offenders in this movie, and they're both men. Uh, There's the chef and this person named Mel who runs the camp. The chef is a child molester, and there's even a point in the movie where he tries to molest Angela. Um, Thankfully, it doesn't happen, but Angela does enact revenge on him, but it doesn't kill him. He is maimed. Boiling water falls on him, and this, this disfigures him. He is obviously in so much pain and is torturous, but at the end of the day, he doesn't die. And then with Mel, he is, he, he's, not a, he's not a child molester, but he is sleeping with minors um, consensually, which is just a whole other thing. But um, it, it is a sexual transgression at the, at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And his death is cool. I liked it because he gets shot in, the air, shot in the neck with an arrow, but it's, again, very quick. Whereas when we look at his counterpart, his his partner, Meg, who was one of the camp counselors that he was sleeping with, she got a more visceral death in this. And that she was stabbed in the neck and all the way down to her butt. Oh. And it, yes, it's, it's um, again, as you just said, I, I described both of those to you. He had more of a visceral reaction to that. Yeah. <laughs> and I just find that so weird that the the women were being... Punish more, and I just realized I left out the, the key example of a woman being or a female character being heavily punished. And she, so is the character of Judy. People that seen this movie know what I'm talking about. But she, she didn't have any sexual transgressions. She was just honestly the worst person ever. Okay. <laughs> she was just a huge bully. But the, the her murder is depicted through shadows. But she gets the worst death in that a curling iron is inserted into her no that's that's a literal nightmare i've had and i've never even seen this movie 
Yes. And so, and again, it's weird just to, again, it happens in shadows and everything. I know that's kind of like against like how she said, like men and women are depicted in these, but in, in the Meg death that did happen in a shower, that was a shower scene. So it is weird though, just at least like the severity of mm-hmm. these. The pain. The pain is so much different between those. Mm-hmm. And again, like going back to the chef, he got a very painful uh, attack, but again, he didn't die. And it's, I don't know, it's just very interesting to look at those that way. Um, well, I mean, not to always be like, it was the 70s, but we do have to look at, 80s, unfortunately, yeah. the normalization of adult men dating teenage girls and how much of society wouldn't have thought that was worth boiling water torture Although now we see it differently. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the characters kind of does it like that's kind of messed up, but he laughs it off in a way. Right. Which I feel like is probably what happened at the time, actually. Yeah. Like that's the realistic part of this. Yeah. And man. So anyways, I, those are just some examples I had about how that is just so different. And I think also an update on that, too, is or it's not even an update. There's a continuation of that is in that movie i know you really like fear street the mm-hmm. who who got the most gruesome death in that movie oh man the young girl who i loved yeah yeah she got the bread the pluckiest slicer. character yeah she got the, the the bread slicer which was the most i mean it's a rad kill fucking love it it was so cool but, but they they don't cut away like you they see don't. her head go and it was brutal because i think for a lot of the the movie that character is framed as our empathetic viewpoint where Mm -hmm. we're like, Oh, she's hustling. Life is tough. Like she's doing what she has to do. Going to be president someday. (laughs) And, but honestly, that is part of, I think what makes her anti final girl material, at least according to everything we've talked about, she wears makeup. I think she was sexually active. She's like trying to make money on the side. Like she is hustling in a way that final girls don't or haven't been shown. I think this is where it potentially ties back to the women's liberation movement idea that she brought up initially, which is like, we take the mouthiest, the angriest women, the ones who like can't be controlled. And we're like, this, this is what happens to you. And I don't think it's the direct message of these films. I think it's just become a staple. Mm. Yeah. I don't think it's direct misogyny is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, it's it's uh, like, again, it's just a fun thought experiment to kind of like look at that. And um, I mean, we're going to get into it when she gets into the body. But I mean, the, Absolutely. The, the, the cinematic language is already there for how to shoot women um, uh, on screen. I mean, and, and just going back to the fear street example that i gave there's there's a bunch of male characters that do die but they die off screen and her her friend i forget his name the, the guy i was basically just trying to be like Stumacher from scream he mm-hmm. he gets a quick axe to the head um yeah so yeah i'm just saying it, it it's, still exists it's so interesting and it i don't know like on the one hand what it makes me think of is that women die like animals in these movies like, and I, I, I don't mean that like they're all hunted. I mean that literally the gutting, the way they are cut, the way they are like 
the way weapons are used against them feels like what you would do to an animal. And men don't die that way. I mean, very occasionally in these movies they do. But for the most part, it's a quote-unquote dignified death. Well, I see now now that kind of makes me think about like the worth of the victims because now it makes it seem more like that the 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 women are worth more so we actually need to use every piece of it where the men are disposable you know we just you know we there's a million of them which let's just go let's just go get another one i mean everybody's bones works for wind chimes <laughs> do you have data on this i'm just kidding it's the um, darkest joke i've ever made um <laughs> Let's get into Final Girl, which is the next section of this. We've already talked a lot about what she has mm-hmm. to say about Final Girls and everything, but I like how she, the note I wrote down was that how she describes the Final Girl as abject fear personified. She is a victim in her own right. She has seen harm happen to others. Harm has happened to her, and she oftentimes survives the movie. And she describes her, she describes the Final Girl as being different from her female cohorts and male counterparts because she is more level-headed. And describes her. Mm. Ooh, I don't know. Okay, we'll talk Sorry, about that. Sorry, I, I don't like the tone policing. The tone policing. <laughs> I just think describing someone as level-headed is coded language in itself. How so? Because it's something more often assigned to men in our culture. Oh, okay. So, oh, I think that's I think that's the point she's making, isn't it? That maybe I I thought she was saying more level-headed than the other women. Oh, I I kind of I mean that's I think that's true. I don't I don't have the exact quote, but I kind of had it. She was talking about like more level headed than like everyone else in the movie, which maybe is just a little victim blaming. I guess. It's, yeah. Some of these deaths are unavoidable. You can't just fight through them. Hmm. Well, I think that the point she was making, like, and again, I mean, it's very possible. I mean, that is a read you could have on this because she does talk about how final girls are more masculine than the rest sure. of their female counterparts. And that could be a coded way of talking about that, or maybe an outdated way of talking about it. Because again, she started this in 85. So, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so some of this could just be subconsciously implanted in her. But she goes on to describe the final girl as having three qualities, virginal, watchful, observant to like a paranoid degree almost, and intelligent, resourceful in a pinch. So I was kind of thinking of like the level headedness as like playing into just her observance and that like she observes that like something is sketchy. We shouldn't do this. Like something's off. And I I never took that as like this is a quality you normally see in men. But you could definitely what you said. Right. That was my thought, too. Like what is more masculine about being watchful? I I don't think it is. And I would argue, in fact, like as we see people of all genders are not particularly watchful or particularly paranoid. Like it's just, it varies by person like anything Mm -hmm. else. I think the, where the final girl becomes masculine is what she, what she was talking about was more of not that these qualities make her masculine in a sense, but Mm -hmm. that she turns masculine to survive the movie and that she becomes angry. And she normally is able to pick up some sort of like phallic object to defend herself with. And then like some of the characteristics that she did describe is like what we associate more with men, like being like a handy person or like a mechanic or like knowledgeable about mm-hmm. things that we normally associate with men. She is knowledgeable about. 
Um, so I think those, but I didn't really take the like being observant. Or, or... That one is so weird to me to assign in any gendered way. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I would argue women would probably be more like paranoid and watchful than the average man in a lot of situations. Mm-hmm. And again, I think that's maybe just like us going into this, you know, being people of the 21st century. Totally. Because we, because, you know, we now have this history of decades of like, you know, like how dangerous the 70s and 80s actually were That's true. for women <laughs> but like these people that were living in the movies and her studying these that that knowledge wasn't necessarily there um so it's just like why did people in the 80s didn't think that they needed to be observant sure she just she she's just <laughs> smart enough to be observant and go hey this ah. is this is triggering something in my head that we shouldn't do while her other Maybe. friends are like, what are you talking about? We could pick up hitchhikers. We could go into houses that aren't ours. We can go out <laughs> in the woods and smoke weed. It doesn't matter. There's nobody there when really Jeffrey Dahmer's there, you know? <laughs> okay. So maybe she wasn't trying to make it gendered. Maybe she was trying to just say, like, this is part of the uniqueness of the final girl. That's and what then... I think. Okay. Yeah. And I mean, I think she gets into it more with just just like it's, she learns to be angry like, like she she you know they kind of sometimes start off as like bookworms mousy whatever but then she transforms into this angry what we associate with men person which allows her to be masculine and win the movie but if she stayed sure if she but st- that premise is so it is weird wrong yeah it is it is it is like that's the part that doesn't make sense to me of these arguments is Teenage girls are really fucking angry. The expression fr- that the way they express it is so wildly different than teenage boys. Yes. And I think that's what I think that's the argument she's saying is that these characters, whether they're final girls or just victims, they're still not being portrayed as real people um, mm. because she uses the language of what film critics have already instilled. So this isn't her saying this wasn't carol saying hey i think the the emotion of anger is always associated with men she was Mm -hmm. stating from what other film critics normally normally associate so she's kind of connecting the dots of like other professionals in this realm of how they've already coded things and she says because Mm -hmm. again this is going back to the male gaze and because these people are making these movies this is how they code things this is what they're trying to say so does that make sense yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I agree with you, though, that that's not right. <laughs> and that it's not cool to say that if you're angry, that on- automatically means you have a masculine trait. And um, yeah, so. Yeah, I mean, all teenagers are angry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, okay, I guess that is a good reminder, though, that a lot of these claims she's stating are based on what, like, how cinema is at the time and it's not mm-hmm. her going out of her way to say this is how she thinks gender is this is how she's right. interpreting cinema thinks gender is so and that's important like to keep she in mind. thinks these are the messages being communicated to the audiences exactly like, right or wrong this is what they are seeing exactly yeah Okay, so there's a lot to go here <laughs> with, with the final girl. Uh, where, <laughs> where do you want to dive into for this? Um, well, I was actually thinking we don't have to dive in too much here because we'll probably want to spend time 
we'll probably want to spend like a whole episode at some point talking final girl yeah so if we just want to do like the overview and then get to shock Mm -hmm. i think that would be fine yeah um i I guess i just wanted to at least talk about that cross-gender identification for oh yes absolutely so that seems really important so she a very interesting thing that she talks about i think she talks about more about this in the body section but i'll go ahead and bring it up here is that who like who the audience identifies with in this and that there is kind of like this paradox of slasher movies in that they are made by men with the male gaze for a male audience but the male audience is being forced to root for and identify with a female victim hero so it's kind of paradoxical Mm -hmm. in that and she this is she talks about like this in the body not so much the final girl but she talks about how pov like the she calls eye camera pov equals identification which i don't necessarily always agree with but um she claims and states that the because we get the pov of killers at the beginning of the movie that the male audience is identifying with the killer throughout the throughout the movie Mm -hmm. but that begins to wane off as the final girl ascends up the the masculine chart and um she she becomes more masculine and we start to get more of her pov and thus that causes us to root for her more because now we're getting her pov and it's like this and she calls this cross-gender identification i think a really cool update on this though was scream actually because Mm -hmm. that's one of the few slashers where we don't get the killer's pov we're always in the pov of the victims or sydney Mm -hmm. but when we do see the killer we don't see them through like uh, a first person pov it's always through the third person objective view of sydney just exiting the frame and we see oh he's in the grocery store following her or Mm -hmm. he's in the bushes at tatum's house so i thought that was a very cool update on not like not that like cross-gender identification is like a bad thing i just think that's an interesting thing but it was a way of not having the audience identify with the killer first, but always being identifying with the victim. Um, so yeah, that's kind of just the point I wanted to make about that. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. And it makes me think of 90% of the original Halloween, which is very similar to what you're describing. Like if we didn't have that opening to Halloween through little Michael Myers' eyes, the entire movie would be that kind of third person omniscient and like hanging out with Lori. And how would that change the mm-hmm. whole movie? Yeah. Like if we went through just the, the POV of his sister or her boyfriend, mm-hmm. or whatever, which again, that's also another good example of the sexual transgression, the women or the, the, the female character in it was punished, but the, the man got to. Well, okay. Away. I, I don't <laughs> understand that premise actually, because I remember the movie, the, Michael Myers doesn't know his sister just had sex. He's outside of the house. Yeah, but he hears them say that, so I don't know. It's just such a strange, like, was he really enraged? Because when you see his face, he's not enraged. Well, Michael Myers is just a whole other thing, but again... Sure, it's just a weird thing to put on a child. It is so weird, but if we're (laughs) playing by her rules, and again, I'm not saying, you know, people are allowed to interpret movies however they want. I think that's awesome that's such a, that's why i love letterbox i love going to see how people picked up different things and how they took something differently but if we're going just by through the lens of this book of this essay and that the pov equals identification we identify with michael we hear what he hears but we don't know there is any hint of rage we don't with him no we don't 
Well, like that's what I question. Do, does the physical action be, though of stabbing uh, imply that rage? doesn't necessarily imply rage? Oh, like, why is this not opening all about gender dysphoria? The naked body we see is the sister. What is Michael mad about? Like that's I think like that is an adult framing put on a child to explain a horrifying act. It's not what a six-year-old child would think. Like, that's what I find so weird about it is like, where is the rage and how many people viewing this movie inserted that rage? Should we have a whole episode just trying to figure that out? Because <laughs> I honestly think like, because I, in watching that movie, never saw rage in the beginning. Hmm. Like, literally, they show his face not enraged. Where are we getting rage? I think that's like a unique thing about Michael is that he is he has uh, he has flat effect. We don't really know what he's thinking or anything, and it's different from like Jason Voorhees, where his Jason's body language, like he busts through doors and things like that. But isn't he an adult? He, he's an adult, but he's still like that delayed. But Michael Myers is a literal child. He has no delayed development. He's a literal child. We're talking about the opening, okay? Yeah, I... that's what confuses me. Is like. Six-year-old logic is not adult man movie critic logic. I don't know. It's such a strange. I'm I'm so curious if there is a gender difference in viewing and interpreting that scene. I think that we need to get into that. I mean, not today, but <laughs> sure. I think I think that would be a fun conversation to get into. I agree because I psychosexual development. Sure, we could talk about that. Rage. I. I don't see the basis for it except in the rage of men watching the movie potentially. But maybe we at some point should do commentary on like the first five minutes of Halloween. Yeah. I think it would be interesting. Yeah. And just like his motivations. I think that'd be fun. Moving on to shock. Um, this one, there's not too, this, this one was the least like gendered Mm -hmm. (laughs) part of it. And it was kind of refreshing. I did think it was really cool though. So, so, so for this section of shock, what she's getting into is about like what actually scares an audience from like hair, from horror and terror standpoint and how she is arguing that what the implied images of horror are more scary than what is explicitly shown. And that not only is that the case, but critics like the implied horror more and that they kind of refer to it as she doesn't say high art, but they refer to it more in a positive light for implying stuff. And that like it was kind of smart, whereas when we see the gore and we see the violence, that's when it becomes a low brow slasher with critics. And yeah, I think that's just pretension because like murder is gross and ugly. (laughs) It is. And so like the shock that she's talking about that comes with this was that um, it's the shock of seeing the bodily harm that kind of like breaks whatever sort of immersion or for some people might even deepen the immersion for them. But I think some good examples of just like the implied horror that's really good. Uh, She gives examples from the psycho shower scene. We get 52 cuts of the knife moving, Marion screaming and flailing, blood going down the drain, but we actually do not get a on-screen depiction of stabbing. Um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre does this too. We actually don't see 
like the hook go through anyone. We don't see the chainsaw go through anyone. It's a lot of it is implied. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's why it's so scary. But I think a good example of people kind of being grossed out by the body horror and thinking it's low brow and really you're just kind of being pretentious is John Carpenter's The Thing from 1982. Mm. I don't know if you've seen this fantastic mm-hmm. movie. Okay, special effects are phenomenal. And yep. at the time it was panned uh, critically oh. and by the audience because they thought it went too far. The special effects were, I guess, too good. It's It still holds up. I love it. And it was just seen as gross, lowbrow horror just because the effects were amazing. And again, that's playing into that shock value that she's talking about and that she's saying what is actually scary is that when we see someone being stalked, because that is foreshadowing implications of serious fear. But then once we get to the initial blow, it plays more off as camp and less like a serious fear that people have. Um so that's basically kind of like what she has to say about shock and how the technology for special effects is kind of the evolution of that where we can now show bodily harm in different ways may have possibly hurt the slasher because less is implied, but I don't know. <laughs> I like implications more. I like I like the implied fear more, but I think that's just inter- interesting how she talks about shock in that way that once once the, the blow happens, it's more camp than it is actual terror. Which is so interesting because actually getting stabbed is the terrifying part. Like that, that is the horror, mm-hmm. truly. Like I know we frame it as the suspense is so terrible that that's what makes us anxious. That's because we haven't been stabbed. Mm. Like I really think there is a level of distance here oh. where the implication can be scary because yes, the stuff could happen to anyone. But if you see like, someone's head getting cut off well that's not going to happen to me that doesn't happen and like even though it does happen to people you have this thing in your head where you're like well i'm never gonna see a head cut off you know there's just the distance you this like intellectual distance you can insert Mm -hmm. even though you know like stabbing would be bloody and horrible and someone being cut like halfway through would just be like a, a horror show yeah like it's not campy; it's awful. <laughs> <laughs> I think I don't. I, that's it. I mean, there are some examples where it is pretty campy. Like, I mean, the thing is kind of camp with it, but I mean, it's sure. good. I mean, there's so many other things that are not. I mean, that movie's not lowbrow at all. So I, I really like what you talked about about that about how there is a distance. And I think that's absolutely true. But this also kind of made me think about like the the purpose of the movie and trying to scare you is that like mm-hmm. like you said like nobody you know you haven't had your head chopped off so you don't know what that feels like so there is a distance there but the other fears that come from the elements of a slasher killer like the stalking part them like spying on you things like that that is scary because that like puts in like a paranoia to you because because like with stalking and somebody like following you and things like that you could not know that's happened to you before or not like somebody could have but you just don't know it and i think that's what's scary about that is that the implication of like these characters i'm watching they're being stalked and they don't know it have i been stalked before and i don't know it and i think that's like that terror that because it's like you kind of how you're just describing it's a little bit less removed because you don't have to know what it feels like you just have to have that thought of oh have i been stalked before and i think that's the the implication that's scary i totally agree with that but if you were to pull people on the street in america men do not worry about having been stalked i think that's true and not knowing it like that is a fear that is predominantly not men 
um, are in worry of being stalked, of being monitored, of being like cataloged in a way um, of someone like shaping your life in a way that you don't know. And so I find that because I agree with you, the stalking is arguably the scariest part of these movies to me. But how are young men identifying with that? And I think that's like what she talks about, how like because we're in that stalker's POV, POV, the men are identifying with this person. They're they're identifying with the stalker. They're not thinking about how scary this is. Which according actually, to her. According to her. Sure. And like probably true. It's just like a vicarious thrill for most of these movies when you're like, oh, my gosh, imagine if I were like in someone's backyard, like watching them shower, you know, like that's a that's a teenage vicarious thing because you know like it's so wrong but i don't know it's so stalking is so gendered at least in our world at this point Mm -hmm. it's massively gendered and in fact even when these movies were written and filmed stalking wasn't taken seriously as a crime like that's such a severe Mm -hmm. mismatch between like a very real fear exaggerated in films lots of people see it but that didn't necessarily lead to change or changes in attitudes. Yeah. And we we talked about I talked about that with the guys from The Great American Scream on my Black Christmas episode. The sorority sisters in that movie are being stalked and uh, they're being harassed with all like these egregious phone calls. And when they go to the police, right. they say, oh, it's probably just a boyfriend, like ex-boyfriend doing that or whatever. But it's still it's not taken seriously. And the point that Devin made on that episode was that. Still, just because this man had a past relationship with you, the authorities say, okay, well, he he has the right to do that. And it's right. not taken seriously. Yeah, exactly. Well, you just, everything you just said, it tracks with the, the, the text that she's drawing from. Yeah. But it's so fascinating because then the logical assumption we'd make is that these movies are written and directed by women. I'm so curious now that, and I know this is not necessarily what, Carol is getting at, although maybe we touch on it in later chapters, is what is happening that men like Stephen King and Brian De Palma are like jumping on these ideas that are mostly about like torturing women's women. fears, <laughs> yeah. but also women's fears coming true and then women triumphing over their f- fears. Like, what? Like, I understand this argument of, like, maybe it's because they see themselves in the women, but, like, how? Like, how did that happen? I'm so curious about that. <laughs> it is. It, all those, like, Brian De Palma and Hitchcock quotes that she pulled were kind of, like, yikes. I literally just wrote yikes in, like, the margin yeah. of my <laughs> yeah. book. Because they said something about, like, women were made to suffer or something like that. Oh, yeah, Ma- male horror directors. There are some great ones and some awful ones. Yeah, and I think Wes Craven's <laughs> like one of the good ones, um, even though he did do that Last House on the Left um, thing. But that's uh, a whole other thing to get into about like rape, rape revenge movies and like, like what's the fucking purpose of those? Um, anyways, we've talked a lot about shock. <laughs> yes, time for the body. The body. Okay, I will admit, this is the one that I was going cross-eyed the most over because there's... (laughs) 
this is good. This is honestly, I felt like that the body could be its own episode. It's like the last ten to fifteen pages of this chapter. Um, um, I mean, we could actually make it its own thing if you want. We could. I feel like I've already talked about it so much. <laughs> I've already right referenced it. Okay. Um, well, then we don't have to like restate everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, this section is getting into what I was getting from it was that it was heavily getting to who the audience identifies with and getting mm-hmm. to the deep weeds of like gender identification, both with the characters and the audience and like how that affects your view of the movie and everything. There, there is a lot here and it kind of ties back to when we were talking about like, is the killer just the killer? Is the victim just the victim? Like it's all actually kind of tied together. Mm-hmm. in this confusion of and i don't know thinking about this in terms of male and female does get a little confusing sometimes because like you said when we were talking before there's this like feminized male figure in the killer and then this like masculinized slash androgynous figure in the girl who becomes the final girl and so there's this like blurring of all the gender lines, but at the same time, not like that there are strict conventions that are followed in this like messiness. Yeah. And like the the blending like happens with like the, the stars of the movie, which are the final girl mm-hmm. and the villain. But the like norms, the victims stick to those. It seems that. And she gets into, as I said, kind of like the who the audience identifies with. And she kind of posits. That paradoxical thing I pointed out is like, who are men supposed to identify with in these slashers if you're not identifying with the killer? Because many of the male characters in this are static. They don't do anything. They're brothers. They're uh, colleagues. They're classmates of the final girl. They die off pretty quickly or at least halfway through the movie. So it's kind of like, who are these, who are men supposed to identify with? Um, and if they do identify with anyone, it's normally sometimes with that the last minute male character hero who steps in and saves the day, like Dr. Loomis shoots Michael Myers at the mm. end of the movie. And like, oh, I identify with him because he came in and saved the day and they want to see themselves as that protector. Um, I think a good update on this is, again, Scream with the Dewey character because Dewey because. Mm. Dewey is a cop. I mean, we do see he's uh, he's kind of a fumbling person, but he is a cop at the end of the day and a slasher. And he does enter the third act like halfway through the third act and you think oh like dewey has a gun and he's going to save sydney save the day but it subverts that expectation and sydney still wins the day even when even randy is useless (laughs) uh at the end of that so i did kind of like that update of hey here's a here's a male character coming in at like the 11th hour oh okay never mind he's actually not going to do anything (laughs) but she talks about that that like that's that's the woodsman Mm-hmm. that's what is expected like she, she does talk about red riding Hood a bunch right so like i wrote down in my notes like dewey is a woodsman so if we had known all of our horror history by the time we saw scream we would have expected him to do exactly what he did there was no subversion which i find really interesting because it still feels like one to us and is that because he's a police officer like is it because we associate like the strength of that position? We don't expect him to be like one of the high school guys throwing his body in front of Sydney. Right. You know, yeah. we expect a level of like competence and protection and then we don't have it. 
but like that is such a simplistic subversion that she's kind of arguing like no we always see these characters these male characters come in the third act and then flop (laughs) i don't know if we do see them flop though it's not fair if you get killed to say flop okay like people get killed it happens (laughs) i don't want to be victim blaming about slasher victims (laughs) these fake people you don't want to hurt their feelings most of them didn't do anything wrong (laughs) most of them um (laughs) see i'm trying to think of and maybe it's just because we've been talking for two hours that i can't think of like really an example outside of like dr loomis or like other people like coming in to save the day and either flop or fail or whatever i don't know um i maybe it's not typically a horror trope i feel like maybe it's an action trope yeah yeah the 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 hero saving the damsel han solo not even the damsel han solo coming back in the third act when you thought he was out yeah (laughs) i I love that that implies that luke is the final girl of star wars (laughs) he is he is kind of the final girl of tatooine like (laughs) oh my god i love it um oh my god that'll be a separate episode too (laughs) I'm texting Nate immediately after this and telling him that. Um, One of the other things she touches on with the body here is not just the subversion of the roles, but like literally how the characters' bodies are framed, like stretch at the end of Texas Chainsaw 2, where she is like the figure in the sun holding the chainsaw, like taking on the quote unquote like male posture Mm. that we saw previously. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah, they get like that hero pose or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This section really fucked with me. I'm sorry. I'm like, struggling it's, here. <laughs> it's why I really don't want to go into like the- caves or vaginas yeah. and like birth canals and emerging out of underground like torture chambers i just feel like there's a lot there's a lot there to like women's bodies that it doesn't necessarily go into here from like a women's perspective Mm -hmm. because why i don't know i feel like any kind of imagery around wombs is just like really confused in horror is it protective? Is it dangerous? Is it a trap? Is it a cage? Is it supportive? <laughs> <laughs> is it supportive? Yeah. See, because I mean, I feel like that just plays more back into the the terrible place thing. Because like I don't know, there are some examples of, like where like the terrible place where it's like the the layer. If you want to think of it, it is kind of like the womb for that mm-hmm. for that villain, like Buffalo Bill, for example. He is oh sure. He's you know someone with gender dysphoria. He is. You know, wanting to dress and wear the skin of women and his lair is there to build and construct that new him that he wants mm-hmm. i mean you know that's all there um so yeah so i don't know there's it's interesting to think about but um i don't know like like when like, like kind of like you said when we get into caves and them breaking through things as like <laughs> image uh like what's it called like birthing imagery and things like that yeah um it's it's definitely there and it's present but it's i find it less interesting to talk about this than like the other stuff that we've been talking about i do too and i also think that's part of in the 30 years since this has been published the way we even talk about men and women and gender and like 
gender nonconformity and gender dysphoria is so different, more expansive, like more studied, quite Mm -hmm. honestly, at this point. Um, Not that these things aren't relevant, just that I don't think they are quite as rigid Mm -hmm. as presented here. Or maybe they were at a point in time, but we no longer exist in that point. I think that's very true. Yeah. And there's been lots of good updates on things. And we did talk about how some stuff is still remains true, but I find that when it happens, it's more of like, cause context is everything, you know, cause mm-hmm. it's, it's not a reflect, like when it comes, when it happens today, I don't necessarily see it as like a reflection of how people or the filmmakers think of women or men in the real world. Mm-hmm. They're just trying to like make something scary. And this, it just happens to the way that it is. But like, in these movies in the 70s and 80s, it's definitely a reflection, like when it does happen, of how social anxieties, yeah, like, just laid bare. The social anxiety of like, it's not even transposed into like, there's a werewolf terrorizing the camp. It's like, no, there's a gender confused person terrorizing the camp, and it's actually a horrible story, and everyone's suffering. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's laid so bare in and. I think that's also part of why it gets called lowbrow. They're, it's not a metaphor. Yeah. They're like just very real problems here. Like Sydney's mom may have broken up Billy's family. Like that's, there's no like abstraction to these movies, <laughs> except maybe in the way of like phalluses and <laughs> mother figures. Mm-hmm. Man. Oh my goodness. Well, I think the last thing I just wanted to say uh, on this, just in case people are kind of wondering, she does, Carol Clover does get into who she thinks is like the grittiest final girl. And that is Nancy from A Nightmare on Elm Street. And I just love that because Nancy is an awesome final girl. She is. She has that awesome line of I'm into survival. She she basically comes (laughs) up with booby traps and she fights back against Freddy and everything. So I just want to at least let people know that she has in admiration for Nancy Thompson in uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street in terms of final girls. I will say there's a lot about Freud's beliefs and theories in here that we did not touch on. There's a lot around, we did. like <laughs> gender and psychosexual development. Um, I think it's, I don't know, it's informative as a reference point, mm-hmm. but it feels like we are just so distant from those reference points socially, culturally, that I don't take it anything more as like, wow, that's wild. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Yeah. No, this is, again, this is just context is everything. This was written in a different time. And I I still think it's, it, it's important for like, this felt like just like a, a way to still look at and study the male gaze in, more so than just like just studying horror purely. But uh, this was a cool way to kind of look at that and see how much it's still evolved. And I mean, it still exists. Absolutely. And one last thing, she does still say, Abject fear is still gendered feminine. The slasher speaks deeply and obsessively to male anxieties and desire, which I think is really interesting as a way of framing 
And while she says that like it speaks to male anxieties, she also says that what it tells us or told us at the time is that there was a loosening of the feminine category towards ambiguity. And I actually think that feeling is maybe truer now than it was in the 90s in that the the idea of what is a girl, what is a woman, what does it mean to identify as female from birth, um, like, is that a unique experience in itself? And what I like about this book is I feel like it's kind of questioning your, like, emotional experience of this is unique, but what we all turn to these movies for, like, is an emotional need. And like we may be served in different ways in watching it, or we may interpret it differently, but like there are core needs that we turn to these films like to deliver on. I I love that take on that. <laughs> oh my goodness! So this was a <laughs> lengthy. Was a this was a lengthy. This was just chapter this one. This was intro and chapter one. This was just yeah. There's intro chapter one. The there's we're we're going to be doing this again. We're going to be doing this. There's only four chapters in this, but they're all very dense, and this will probably happen in two months. I don't know. I plan on releasing these like every other month. Um, that's fine. And that's because it takes. And- I know it's going to take both of us time to get through these and wrap our heads around them. Yeah, and as we get deeper into some of the chapters, I want to make time to watch some of the specific movies that she references so I can speak to them more. I, in chapter one, I didn't feel like it was as important because it's like a survey in general of these movies. But I think as we get more specific, um, it would be good to touch on the movies more. Mm-hmm. And she does do a good job at contextualizing the points that she's trying to make about like why she's bringing this up from, from the movie or whatever. Um, I did feel like I was reading a lot of recaps <laughs> while I was going through this chapter. I mean, that's good for me. Because I don't want to watch all these movies. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Well, Orlean, thank you so much for coming on to just do this. This is fun. This is kind of like a weird, a really weird academic horror book. It's like a grad school seminar that we're having. Yes. And, you know, we don't claim to be experts on gender or anything. This is, again, a fun thought experiment and a cool way to think about, you know, the movies you're watching and like really think about why are things framed a certain way or like why are they shooting characters differently or things like that i think it's it doesn't like i said it doesn't necessarily mean a movie has bad intent or anything but it's i mean sometimes you know really think about what it's saying and if it's harmful or not yeah and understanding i think you don't have to analyze everything you watch but having an idea of the lens through which it's looking at the world I think that is helpful context to knowing that like this thing presented to me is not just like a two hour fact or story that really happened. Like this is someone's creation. And so their, as we said, like their dreams, our dreams, our social anxieties, like all these things go into slasher movies. Orlean, thank you so much for coming on and doing this with me. Where can people find you in your podcast, Spooky and Strange? Thanks. And thanks for having me. This was so fascinating and fun. Uh, You can find me at Spooky Orlean on Twitter and Instagram. 
and uh, I will be dropping more weird fiction episodes. So stay tuned. Yeah, yeah. I'll put links in the show notes. And in case people are new to the show and new to Orlean, you were my first guest. So if people want to go back and listen to our episode on host, episode number two or three. Uh, oh my gosh, that was a great one. That was that was so much fun to get into and just us getting into the weeds of what genre it is. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> And watch that movie. Like, that's a great Shudder movie. That is a great one. And it's only, it's less than an hour, so it's good. All right, everybody. Watch some good movies. I'll see you next time. Bye.